0: Good morning, church. Good morning. You know, we you know we sing like all month in December, we sing Christmas songs and stuff, and not just like a church, but everywhere. And you know, there's these points in time when you stop and you realize just how true you know some of what you sing is. And this morning, I was talking to Jane Keller out in the lobby. We were getting coffee, and I asked her how she was, and she said uh, the weather outside is frightful. I said, I think, you know, I think that's, that's, you got it right there. You got it right on the nose. <laughs> it is frightful. Oh, man. Um, so a couple of things that I wanted to sort of mention or talk about before we get into our message this morning, which if you have a Bible, you'll never guess. You're going to want to turn it to Romans. We're in chapter 2. We're not that far um, into the book. So two things. First, I'm really excited because... Um, you may have read in your bulletin and saw last week, but um, I get to lead a trip to Columbia um, to uh, to help support and minister to um, the Wymores in the work that they're doing there with Wycliffe Bible translation, with uh, Wycliffe Bible translators. Wycliffe, it's Wycliffe, right? Wycliffe, Wycliffe. Jan, you're like whatever, whatever, right? Okay, call it whatever you want just be confident as you do. Um, so if you know the Wymore's, they um, have been a part of this church for many years, and they're currently serving in Columbia, um, and they come back. They were just back for a few weeks, and we sometimes hear from them, well, um, my, um, my family's developed kind of a close relationship with them as they're in the mission field because I use my privileged position to get Alan's cell phone number, and uh, we send videos back and forth, and my son is constantly asking him questions about what it's like in Colombia, and he's constantly sending us messages of interesting things. He told me last time we were having coffee, he's like, just so you know, the stuff that you see—that's not all we do. Like, we actually do Bible translation stuff. It just seems like something a nine-year-old wouldn't want to see a video of, you know, because it's a little bit more boring than the other stuff I send you. So, because of that, my son wants to go, and so the trip at this point is two people—it's me and a nine-year-old. Uh, I mean, he will be—he t- will be ten at that point. But um, so you may be like, "Well, that—that's it for me. Never mind." But um, if you have ever considered, um, well, I just want to ask this. I'll make this super easy for everybody. I'll let God do all the heavy lifting here. I want to ask everyone in this room to pray and ask God if you should go to Columbia with me and my son. I'll even let you sit in between us on the plane if you really want to, um, especially if I can get like eight people in between us on the plane. That'd be great. But... Um, pray about it and ask God if it's something that he would lead you to do I want to ask you to do that um, because uh, I believe if God is calling you to serve there that he will uh, not leave you alone and um, and I got and I, I'll tell you if you're thinking to yourself well I'll tell you what the last thing that I would do is something like this well that's what I thought about myself honestly um, and as I found myself talking to Alan and talking about this t- uh, bringing a team together last time he and Holly were here speaking to our church I remember he said from up on stage he said it would be such a huge help to us if we could bring a team to where we are to help support us in our ministry, to both meet some of the people um, in, the, in these villages, to uh, be a part of our church for a little while, to meet and help administer to some of the families that we're connecting with in our church, just to bridge this gap in between, um, our, in between our sending uh, country and our culture and the culture that we're here ministering to in Wycliffe. I think, I know that it would also, it's also going to be this tremendous encouragement to just Alan and Holly as well. So um, I want to encourage you to pray about it and you can email me and you can email the church and get my info and I can give you some more information on what we're going to be doing and what it's going to look like, but it's going to be May 20th through the 30th. And um, so anyway, there you go. That's my plug for the missions trip. Really excited about it. and um, And then maybe even if we get enough people to go, I'll just step back and you guys can go and just make sure that you take care of Tegan. Um, he's gonna do great. I sure it'll be fine. Um, no, just kidding. I want to go. Uh, the last question that we just sent like a week ago, the video was, uh, "What do they eat in Colombia?" And uh, and then we got a response back on like what they eat in Colombia. So I'm telling you, it's great. This way, I abuse my privilege to get these these this information from my son. So the other thing I wanted to just mention was. Last week, um, our worship pastor Aaron mentioned at the end of the service that he will be leaving us, which we're really sad about because we love Aaron so much. Um, and uh, he has accepted a role, a position um, at a church um, in Vancouver, and he's going to be um, a pastor of discipleship and men's ministry there. I've known Aaron for a long time. I know that he's been called to ministry beyond just worship leading. And um, I'm very excited for him and his family and what this means, but very, very sad for us. Like, I think we selfishly get to be sad you know, that we're losing Aaron because Aaron's been so great. And I just want To say, you know, Aram has been a friend of mine for a while, my family, but also, you know, Aram came and has led in a very Difficult time in the life of this church. I think we said goodbye to our longtime worship pastor. How do you follow Dave Larude? Right, uh, we said goodbye to Pastor Davis. He retired, and then through COVID and the shutting down of church and meeting in tents and different rooms in the building, we had some Sundays where you guys came and we just wanted to make sure you had no idea where you were going to have church. It might end up being in a bathroom stall or something if that's what you know the requirements said. We did so uh, we went from all kinds of. Just totally losing it felt like our sense of like what it means to come together and worship and have any kind of like predictability in that, and um, switching the uh, going from two worship styles to a single worship style in a service. There are just so many so many reasons why I think it's a challenge for anyone to come up and to lead worship in a time that Aram stepped in. And I think the blessing and the wonderful thing about his ministry that I've been so grateful for is that um, Aram, as a worship pastor and a worship leader, is so good at. Uh, bringing the focus of worship to God himself and not on, on himself as the leader. And I know that that is what our church has needed in this time. Our church has needed to be able to focus entirely as much as possible on God himself as we worship and to try to allow the other things to fall away because there is so much to focus on other than God himself. And so more than anything, I'm grateful for that. And I'm, I'm so, oh man, I saw him. Then I got all choked up. That, why did I have to see you? Why can't you stay hidden back there? Um... Really sad to lose them, but really excited for their family, and just, it's been such a blessing, so um, we're really grateful for that, and we trust God, we know that God um, will bring us um, someone who's even better, I'm just kidding, I'm just going to say, you know, different, they'll be different, you know, but I do require that they have a beard, because I'm very attached to that, so I like beards a lot, so anyway, um, our blessings are them, and please grab them and, you know, do the thing where you, like, hug and don't let go, and then when they want you to let go, you still don't, or that with a handshake, that's Aram's favorite thing in the world. Um, Okay, so we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. Let's go back to talking about wrath and judgment, okay? I'm more comfortable with that. Um, We're going to be in Romans chapter 2, and we're going to be reading through verses 12 through 29. This is kind of a longer passage, um, and then we're going to talk about what all this means here. So we'll put it up on the screen for you Um, if you don't have a Bible we talked last week about God's righteous judgment and his wrath, and this week we talk more about who all that applies to and why that matters. So here is Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 29, through the end of the chapter. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. We'll stop right there. One of the most significant things that happened for God's people in all of history was the giving of what Paul refers to here, the law. We read in Exodus, and then again in Deuteronomy, that as the, uh, the, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, after God had delivered them and saved them from Egypt, where they were enslaved, he brought Moses up to a mountain and revealed himself, partially to Moses, fully would have killed him instantly, revealed himself partially to Moses, and then revealed himself to the people in an even uh, more uh, thorough way uh, by giving Moses the law. He comes down with the tablets, and this is the basis for God's uh, law that is given to his people. Now, this law is more than just Ten Commandments. It's it's a lot of laws, hundreds of laws and rules and things that uh, not only talk about uh, how the people are to uh, act towards each other, but also how they are to uh, be towards God, how they're to worship Him, how they're to run this entire sort of kingdom that God is putting together. Uh, The law uh, would become a huge part of the identity of every person who is Jewish from this point forward. If you are one of God's people, you know that because you live by, you abide by, you follow the law. The laws did a few things. The first is they blessed your life. The the, the good thing about the law that God gives his people in the Old Testament is that it literally makes your life better. If the creator of the entire universe chooses to tell you how it's supposed to run, right, that's probably going to make your experience in the universe a lot better. And it does. See, God's law is intended to be a guide to people. It is intended to show them what is real, the heart of God himself, what the things are that he cares about, what the things are that he despises, and how they are to live. And this is such a good thing. And when God gives it to the people, he tells them very clearly as they're, uh, as they're not entering into the promised land yet, but as they're wandering the wilderness, he says, here's how the law is going to work. If you follow these laws, these things that I give you, if you obey them, then things will go well for you. We read in Deuteronomy 12 specifically where God says to the people, he says, the land that you're going into will be a land flowing with milk and honey. And uh, which is a way of saying it's going to be a really rich, uh, rewarding, bountiful land. But he says to them something very interesting. He says, the land you left in Egypt was a place that they had to water and irrigate, and they had to grow things. If they wanted to grow something, they had to put all this effort into growing and into watering and into all these, these systematic things that they did that man himself would have to accomplish. He said, the land that you're going to will be watered by the rain. It will be watered by God himself. And if you want that rain to come, you have to follow the law. He says, if you obey me, here is my agreement with you. If you obey me, then I will bring the rain. I will bring you life. I will take care of you. You'll have food because I will grow it for you. He goes a step beyond that even. And he says, also, if you obey the law that I give you, then I will protect you because there will be people that want to take your land because you will have taken land and pushed out people that were in it. And you'll be surrounded constantly by enemies and they'll want to come and conquer you and take your land. And so the only way that you'll have security is again by obeying the law. Why? Because if you are obedient to me, if you choose my way over your way or any other way, then i will take care of you that is what god says to his people so they have a high motivation they have a lot of motivation to do what god tells them to do if we choose to do the right things do the good things live our lives and be defined by god's good truth of his law then he will take care of us and he will protect us from our enemies This is the arrangement that people have with God. But it it goes even further than that. We read this in in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Well, first of all, to be very clear, this is what God's law brings his people, it seems first and foremost, is for them, what it means is if you want to experience a life of true blessing, if you want to experience the good life what the Jewish people called shalom, a sense of peace and well-being and wholeness and completeness. If you have any hope of a life in which you can experience that, you will need God's law. You will need his way. You will need to live your life by what he outlines as what is good and true. And so when he gives it to his people, he's giving it to them, and he's telling them this is good for you. This brings life. And all other ways bring death. So God's law brings blessing, but it brings something else as well. And this is what we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 4. We read this. Uh, God says this. He says, keep them and do them. This is talking about his laws. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statues, will say, surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. For what great nation is there? that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us. For whenever we call upon him, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So what we read here is that apart from giving the people blessing, the reason that God gives them the law, and I think the primary reason that he gives them the law, is because... He desires that they, as a people, show the world who he is. You will be my people, and through you, the world will see me. And how will they see me through you? I will give you the law, and as you live by this law, people will look at you and they will say these exact things. They will say, in a world in which we live, where gods feel distant, and when they get too close, we actually don't like that, and we wish they felt distant, because the times that we feel like they're too close are the times that we feel like they're smiting us and they're doing bad things. They're capricious, they're unpredictable, they're murderous less, they're, they're, they're beneath what we think God should be. People that come from cultures in which this was how they saw God. this people over here has a God who is so close and nearby to them, has given them such tremendous wisdom and understanding, has essentially advanced them to such a degree. He must be a good God indeed. He must be a great God indeed. Our God's pale in comparison to the God of the Israelites. Okay. So God gives them the law as a blessing, but God also gives them the law as a witness. God's law itself is a witness to who he is. The law of God is like is like if a if a if a society, if a group of people were somehow given some like advanced technology that they shouldn't have. And then all of a sudden, they are an advanced civilization, right? It's like if somebody, you know, if you went back in time, hundreds of years, you gave somebody like a lightning rod and taught them about electricity in some civilization, some island, some village, some town, some group of people, that group would advance significantly beyond the people around them. And this was what the law did. It allowed the people to create a society and a nation from scratch, they didn't need like all this time and all of this trial and error and, and everything else that went into any other kind of civilization. They were able to build a community and a nation around this thing that they could not have developed themselves, but that God himself gave them. And it was so miraculous. What they had as a result was that people, it, it, the people looked at them and they said, they said, there's something else behind this and it is the God of the Israelites The Old Testament laws, all of them, were uh, a way of people for people to make sense of the world that was unprecedented. because it was rooted in a, in a creator who is knowable, who is predictable, who is faithful, who is compassionate. This great God was not shy about saying what was good and what was bad, what brought human flourishing and what brought human death. And the law is comprehensive beyond what we usually think of when we think of a law. So when we think of laws and law, think of it like this. Think of a road with some cars driving on it. When we talk about, about morals, about rules, about laws, about the things that should govern, uh, the way that people act and the way that people are, what we think about is we think about the driving rules that dictate uh, how this car is supposed to drive on the road and how this car is supposed to drive on the road. Because what we don't want is the cars running into each other. We don't want cars running into each other. We don't want them running off the road. Um, And so the idea is that once you get people together, you've got to manage their behavior. You've got to manage the way that they live. We've got to have some way of making sure that you don't hurt me and that I don't hurt you, even though, of course, I wouldn't hurt you. But fine, I'll follow the laws because I'm really more interested in you not hurting me, right? Right? We want uh, rights, we want things to be protected, we want to live in an orderly society, and so human beings set out to come up with ways that we can live and behave and act in a society so that the cars aren't running into each other on the road, and we think of those things as laws. God's law is so much bigger than that. God's law goes a step further, and we see this so well when Jesus comes, and he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to to fulfill the law, and Jesus begins teaching on this new thing that's not really a new thing, but it wasn't the way that people seem to be thinking, and it was this. Hey, guys, I know it's great that we're talking about how all the cars are staying in their lane, and I, I get that you're all very obsessed with cars staying in their lane, but um, do you guys realize that, like, none of the cars are working right to begin with? Like, how about how the car works? How about how, about how the engine works and how the transmission works and, and how this thing actually functions? Because, uh, unfortunately, you can't just pour maple syrup into a gas tank and have it work because that's what you believe and that's how you feel and that's how you'd like for cars to work. God's like, I created you guys, so here's the deal. I'm going to tell you how you work, and I'm going to tell you what leads to your blessing. I'm going to give you a way for you to know how you can flourish and how you can be where you need to be internally so that you can even drive on the road. And then he goes a step further. Because then there's the rules for the cars on the road, but then there's also the question of where are all these cars going anyway? We also don't really care much about that as a society. We're like, listen, make sure we stay in our lanes, don't worry about how the car's running, and don't worry about where we're going. Everybody can figure that out for themselves. You see, when God gives the law to his people, when Jesus talks about the law, and when Paul talks about the law, when people talk about the law in the Bible, they're not just talking about one thing. They're talking about something that tells us everything about the way we are to be because God has something to say about these different aspects of our life. And so the law says to us, here is how you internally are supposed to work. Don't tell me how I'm supposed to work internally. Sorry, but I'm going to because I made you and I can tell you, your heart shouldn't look that way. It needs to look this way. You don't want that stuff going on inside of your mind, inside of your will. You don't want those things happening within you because if they do, they will corrupt you. And as they corrupt you, don't even, don't even, I wouldn't even start worrying about how, whether you're running into the other cars on the road. Okay. You're, you're not even running right now. Okay? You're sitting in the back lot somewhere covered in rust. Because you don't seem to care at all about how you yourself are running. And the question of, what are we even doing on this road anyway? Where are we going? What is this about? What is the point here? We can't all just decide that we want to go our own way. That leads to chaos, which is what we experience in the world around us constantly. When our world talks about law, it's talking about something in a pretty limited sense. When the Bible talks about law, what, he get, what God gave to his people, he is talking about something much bigger that encompasses much more of our lives and the world in which we live. And that is why the only way that you could experiencing, experience true blessing is to understand how God says to live and what he says is true and to seek to live by that thing the law would become the basis for the entire Jewish identity. They became the people of the law, people of the rules, and they began to define themselves by their ability to follow the rules. There's a couple things that the law is not. Now, we read here that Paul is saying to the people um, in, in the church in Rome, He is saying to them, there are those of you who live by the law who are Jewish, and you probably believe that you're uh, in a better position and you're standing with God because you are the people of the law, because you possess this great thing. You're part of that group. Certainly the Gentiles are sinful. You don't have to convince us of that. But like we talked about last week, Paul's claim is that everyone is deserving of the wrath and the judgment of God because everyone is sinful. The next obvious question a Jewish person would ask is, but how is that true, Paul? Because we have the law, and we're living by this thing. Paul's response to them is, no, you're not. Excuse me? But you're not doing the things you talk about. You're probably still too focused on the cars staying in their lanes, but you don't seem focused very much at all on what's going on inside of the car and how it's running, and you don't seem that interested in uh, getting people to go where you're going or to care where their cars are driving at all. There's a couple of things that we see in what Paul's saying here that that happens. You see, this good gift that God gives his people seems to be able to be distorted or corrupted or misunderstood by God's people and whoever possesses it. And that when that happens, people seem to be able to be under the impression that they're following it, that they're doing something with it, that it itself does something that it was never intended to do. We talked about what God's law is, it's a witness, it's a blessing, but there are also some things that God's law is not. The first is that God's law is not a measure. God's law is not a way for us to uh, measure ourselves or compare ourselves to other people so that we can know who's doing better and who's doing worse. And because of our, our hearts and the way that we tend to work living in the flesh, we have a tendency to use it this way. And it's one of the things that the Jewish people did, and it's one of the reasons that this was a huge blind spot for them. There is so much benefit in being a people who have this thing that God gave his people we read about in the Old Testament. There is so much good that comes from this. It is tremendous. Paul says to the church, he says here in Romans, he says you are a people if you are a people. He says if you are really a people who boast in God, who know his will, who are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, the teacher of children, having the embodiment of all the knowledge and truth. He's not being sarcastic about this. He's saying each and every one of these, to boast in God is a good thing. This boasting is not a bad kind of boasting. This is the boasting that you do when it's warranted. He's like, listen, if you are truly a people who, who, are, who boast, who talk, who are more willing to talk about how good God is than how good people are and how good you are, if you are a people who, because the law gives you the ability to do that. The law causes you to be a person who is living in such a way that you will find yourself pointing as a signpost to God himself and not you. You will be boasting in God with the very way that you live your life. Are you a people who know His will? Because that is the blessing of the law, is that it gives you the ability to understand and know the heart of God Himself as He has made it known to His people. A guide to the blind. We live in a world of spiritual blindness. Who can possibly know which way to go? Those who God has given the truth, and those people can be guides to those who do not know. A light to those who are in darkness. There is truth in how God tells us to live, how he tells us that we function. The simple fact alone that what's wrong with the world is not out there, but it is in here in our own hearts. That causes us uh, to be with the good truth of God, with the hope that he brings, uh, the knowledge that he gives us, a light to a world that is living in darkness, an instruction to the foolish, a teacher of children. Who is going to be the one who instructs children? Who should be guiding and directing children in the way to live their lives and the way to go? Probably somebody with the law. Probably somebody who is aware of God's goodness and what He expects and what He calls us to do. If you consider yourself a people who have an embodiment of the knowledge of truth, the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, if you live in such a way that, God's, uh, that knowledge of God and that the truth of God are lived out in your very life. You are a people who have this tremendously good thing. The, 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 God sees the world as being made up of two different types of people, people who see and are aware of God's law and people who are not. It seems that he sees this distinction as, as there is this tremendous blessing here. But what we tend to do with this wonderful thing that we have, we discover this strange thing early on in our life. We find that we feel, we care about the way other people are doing in life too. So like as I'm living my life and I'm growing up and I'm a little kid, it doesn't take long for me to realize that the things other people are doing affect me. That how well other people are doing affects how I feel about myself. We have a tendency to compare ourselves to each other. In our desire to find value, and our desire to find validation, and our desire to be significant, we have a tendency to like to compare and to see who measures up. We also long to have something that we can measure ourselves by to go, I know that I am doing well and that I can be proud of who I am and the way that I'm living on my own. we have a tendency, people, it seems, when God gives them his law, have a tendency to use it as a way to measure ourselves, to use it as a way to measure other people. We really like that it gives the ability to do that. Any law gives us the ability to do that. This is something that tended to happen with the Jewish people. And it's a way that they would distort the law. It's a thing that they had a habit of doing. And it's a thing that anyone who possesses the law, I think, will feel tempted to do. But the other thing that the law isn't, apart from just a way to measure, is it is also not a way to control. The other way that we tend to use the law, or that we are that we're prone to use it, that we're prone to use it incorrectly, uh, is we like the idea of having some way of being in some kind of control in this crazy world that we live in, where we feel like we have no control. If you've ever sat in traffic, you know how this feels. I grew up in Southern California. And I used to sit in traffic constantly. And there's two ways that you handle being in traffic. There's you just resign yourself to it, which I highly recommend. Or there's this, there's got to be a way and you're, you're changing lanes. You're, you're just, no. Oh, they're going, no, okay, no, that one's going, no, that one's going. There's gotta be a way. Maybe if I get off and I find that, maybe, no, maybe if I go around that way. I spent so many times, there were so many days in my, in my daily commute as I would sit in traffic that I would try to find ways to beat it. I would try to find ways to have some sense of control because I find myself sitting in a situation. If you've been delayed on a flight and had to sit in an airport and had no control over what happened to the next part of your schedule, you understand that feeling of what it's like to just go, I want to be back in control. We're very good at setting up our lives in such a way that we are in control as much as possible. Not sure if that's something that you've ever thought about. Our lives all look different, But most of us have found ways to live our lives so that we have the maximum amount of control over our circumstances. Some of us are in relationships with people for that very reason. We choose to be with certain people because we feel like we have more control. A lot of disorders and a lot of unhealthy things that people do stem from a need to have control, a need to be able to introduce order, into life so that I can feel like I'm in control of what I'm doing throughout my day, even in some of the most insignificant things like the way that I prepare my food or what I eat or uh, the number of times that I turn on a light switch. We live in a world in which we are constantly aware that we're not really in control. And that's one of the hardest things for us to accept without becoming completely apathetic and giving up on life altogether. And so one of the things that we see happen is people use law as a way to control. We use it as a way to control other people, tell other people how they should be. We use it as a way to control circumstances and situations. And we use it as a way to feel like we now have more control over what happens to us and the things that we do. These are the things that we tend to do with the law and God's people tended to do with them. And they weren't entirely healthy. What Paul says here in this passage in Romans 2 is he is saying to the Jewish people, I know that you think that because God's given you this great thing, because you're aware of it, And he even goes as far as to talk about circumcision, saying, uh, because you've taken this permanent, irreversible step of being a part of these people of God, then now, obviously, you're not sinners, right? Sinners are the people that don't live by the law. Sinners are the people that don't have the blessing. Sinners are the people who haven't taken the huge step of commitment that's irreversible. Paul's message to them is this. And this is key, and this is something that we're going to get into way more in Romans. The law was never given to God's people to save them. It was never given to God's people to justify them. It was never given to God's people to make them righteous. God never said, you only get to be my people if you follow all my laws. God said, you can have rain and water, you can be protected from your enemies, you can have a promised land, and this is the way to do that. But there was never a scenario in which the people of God had to use the law as a way of being justified, as a way of being made righteous. Because guess what? We can't do it that way. God would have been giving us a system that is doomed to fail from the beginning, and many people understand the law working that way, and they go, how in the world is God coming up with these plans? Because they don't seem to be very good ones. The truth is the law was never meant to save us or God's people. It was never meant to uh, give us a way to be justified on our own. But we love finding ways to be justified on our own. We love opportunities to do things on our own. The thing that the law does every time, and this is not just God's law, this is every law, is it condemns. He says something so interesting here about the Gentiles, and it's something that is so important for us not to miss. He says uh, they, uh, they will be judged by what they consider to be right and wrong, and he says that their consciences will accuse and then it will excuse them. And what that means is there's, there's two things that you do. You either accuse someone of doing something wrong or you excuse them and you go, no, no, they're not doing something wrong. You have that wrong. So what he's saying here is he's saying that even people who have not been given God's law will live their lives in such a way that on one day you will say this thing is wrong and the next day you will do that thing. He says that's how people work. If you don't have God's law, you're gonna make up your own. And I'd be very careful talking so much about like how everyone is supposed to be and has to be because you will probably not be able to do that very thing you're talking about. Paul understands the way that people work. He's living in an environment where there are Jews and Gentiles. And he is not saying that these religious people, these people of God, are any worse than anybody else. No, what he's saying to them is he's saying, to them, he's saying that... that Any law that we live by, and there is law for all of us, will ultimately condemn us. You will have to constantly change the law over and over and over again in order to not be condemned by it, but just to let you know that will make you a huge hypocrite, and no one will want to listen to anything you have to say. You'll be like, oh, no, not that, now this. No, not that, now this. Not that, now this. And this was exactly what the Jewish people themselves even began to do. When Jesus came in his time, the people that he spoke against the most harshly were the scribes and the Pharisees because they spent all their time analyzing it and talking about the law, but they missed these massive components of the law, specifically the ones that dealt with how the car was running on the inside. Any law that we are given, God's law, God's law, the law of man, the one that you might make up with yourself one day if you live on an island and it's just you, that law will ultimately condemn you because you will not be able to do the things that you know you ought to do. This is one of the most powerful truths that we read about in the Bible when it comes to talking about the way human beings operate. And Paul talks about it a lot. We just don't do the things that we want to do no matter how convinced we are that they're right, we're still not going to be able to do them because we live in the flesh. This is ultimately what the law does, is it points us to the fact that we need something else in order to save us, which is fine with God because he's saying constantly, you need me to save you. You're not going to be able to save yourselves. The root cause of sin, the the original sin, was man and woman saying, we'll be fine on our own, God. Thanks very much. And everything that you're given, you will be prone to want to do that with. And I think this is an incredibly important thing for the church to understand because we must be a people who hold up and value God's truth which leads to blessing and true peace. We must be a people who say, yes, what God calls good is good and what God calls wrong, bad is bad. That, 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 that it matters not just how you're driving on the road, but it matters what's going on in your heart. And it matters where you're going at all. We must be a people who care deeply about what God has revealed about himself in his truth, in his law, in his word, But we also must be a people who recognize that that is not what saves us. One pastor put it very well this way. He said, American Christianity now is in crisis in large part because people have marketed it as a religion of good people getting better, when in fact it is a religion of bad people coping with the failure to be good. Full disclosure, I came to Christianity... Hoping to be better. Okay, when I became a Christian as a teenager, I fully was intending to become a better person because I happened to have a lot of people in my life telling me, you're kind of a mess right now. I think it's, it's true that if many of us were honest, we would have to admit that what got us here to begin with is often a desire to go from being a good person to a better person. Self-improvement. We live in a very idealistic world. You're like, what? I don't think we do. But we live in a world with a very high view of what human beings can accomplish. And we want to live and believe in this idea that we actually can get good enough that we're better, that we're okay, that we're fine. The Bible tells us that's not true. In reality, what the church is, what our religion is, it is one of bad people coping with a failure to be good. Above all else, the law seems to point out the fact that we just can't do it on our own. We're going to have to time and again, time and again, kind of spoil the story by telling you how it ends because there's no way to go through something like Romans and talk about the things Paul talks about without doing that, and it is this. The good news of the gospel is that there is a way for us to be saved. That we aren't supposed to just do this on our own. That God never gave the law to his people intending that they would prove that they were fine without him. That the law points us back to, the more we care about it, it points us back to our inability to do it. And I'm not here today to tell everybody that you're supposed to feel horrible about yourself. I'm saying that we're supposed to have a realistic view of ourselves. And we're supposed to say, who am I and how do I stand before God? Because the good news of the gospel is that God welcomes in those who say, I cannot do it. The world may think I'm great at this, I'm great at life, I'm great at following laws, I'm great at doing the right thing, but I'm failing at it. Many of us have gotten so good at only selectively looking to the law that we don't see how we're failing at it at all. Everyone else probably does, but we don't. We're feeling great about ourselves and our efforts to do it. Ultimately, the law, all law, condemns. It's also the reason why, as Christians, we're not in—we're not meant to just bring law to people and hope that somehow it will bludgeon them into this like feeling of complete like misery and need for God. In reality, their own law is doing that. Any law that anyone chooses to apply to their life and follow with any kind of consistency is going to lead them to the conclusion that they aren't good enough to live it out. The good news of the gospel is that we have hope and that our hope is in Jesus, that it isn't in what we do. The Jewish people had a tendency to feel that way, and Paul comes to them and he says, even those of you who took this huge step of circumcision, even those of you who have seen yourselves your entire lives and were maybe even raised in homes where you saw yourselves as the better group of people, Know that God has given you a tremendous gift in this thing, but know that it is not what saves you. That what saves you is Jesus. It's what we celebrate in December. Is that a Savior has been born and that that Savior brings life and that we never needed to do it on our own? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the gift of your truth and of your word and of your law. Not just the laws that you gave to the people in the Old Testament, but God, the fact that when Jesus came, that he really doubled down on it, that he was very clear that that his desire, that your desire for us is that our hearts, our thoughts, our desires, the things that go on on the inside of us be just as pure as the actions on the outside. God, would you help us to fight the urge to use what we know of you, the truth you've given us in your word, simply as a way of trying to control the things around us, the people around us in our own lives? Would you help us to avoid this tendency that we have to use the truth that you give us to simply see where we measure up to everyone else and to see how they measure up with each other, God? Lord, as we reflect on this, on the gift of what you've given us with your truth in a dark world, may we be overwhelmed with the good news of the gospel. I know that there are some today who feel so beat down and so worn down and so exhausted and probably so cynical because they really have been trying to just be justified by what they do. I pray, Lord, that the good news of the gospel would just be relief. That it would bring us the freedom and liberation that your word tells us about, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.